this morning. Good morning. I'm, I'm Pastor Scott. Uh, it's a privilege to be with you today to bring the message. And uh, here we are, midsummer, a little bit past midsummer. Uh, school's going to be cranking up pretty soon. And I was looking at the calendar just recently, and, and I realized that this week is actually somewhat of a significant day in the life of our church or a significant time. It was 30 years ago this week that a group of people got together in a living room and started praying and worshiping together and dreaming about this. Um, you are the fulfillment of those dreams and those prayers this morning. And so I think we need to say, yay, God. Thank you, Lord. Uh, God did it. He, and, uh, and I'm glad that he did. And now we're moving into a whole new generation. And so that's very exciting for me. So it's really a joy to be able to, to speak today, to be able to share. Uh, we're going to resume our series on the Lord's Prayer next week. But this morning, what I'd like to do is to go into the Old Testament, into the book of Joel. It's one of the ones kind of hard to find because it's thin. There's not very much, uh, many chapters in, in that. But what we want to do is mine one of those very precious kind of hidden away jewels of grace and of hope that are found in the Old Testament. Many times we think about the Old Testament um, just primarily like the walls and rules and long list of people in bloody wars. And uh, because that's part of the human drama, human history, you do find those things in there. But the bigger picture, the bigger story of the Old Testament is the story of the pursuit of God for the hearts of people. Uh, we keep messing it up, and he just keeps pursuing. I mean, he, he set it up pretty good at the very beginning when he created the heavens and the earth, and, he, and God backed up and said, it's good. Now, when God says something is good, it's good. And, and then man came along, and we've kind of messed things up. And he's so constantly pursuing us, drawing us back to him, trying to, to win us. And if you look at the Old Testament with eyes wide open, you begin to see his relentless pursuit for the hearts of people. He simply doesn't give up on us. And I'm so glad because when you read the Old Testament, you do see the bloody wars and the problems and, and the mistakes and the things that happen. It would be real easy for us to look back and say, hey, if it were me, I would say, okay, you know what, a couple of shots, this didn't work. Let's just start over again. But God doesn't. He doesn't give up on us. He continually pursues us. He constantly is calling people back to himself, constantly forgiving and pursuing the hearts of people. Maybe people get discouraged or they get off base or they just get into sin uh, or they get attached to other things other than God or they just get lazy or they perhaps in the Old Testament you see them sometimes just take God's blessings for granted and say, okay, you know, we, everything's good. We can slack off. We don't have to pursue God so much. And, and other things come into the life attaching themselves to, to those people, but God just continues to pursue. It's, it's like drifting I don't know if you've ever been on a uh, river expedition where you're just drifting down a river, but the, the neat thing about drifting is it takes no effort. All you have to do is nothing, and the river does the work for you. And I have a friend who was rafting with a group of guys, and they were on this wonderful, lazy little river, just kind of easily going down the river, and he fell asleep. And the next thing he knew, he's waking up and he hears a roar. And guess what? It's too late. It's the waterfall. And they went over. Fortunately, nobody got hurt. But he said that God really used that as a lesson for him to point out that it's so easy to just drift in life, not be intentional about where we're going. It takes no effort whatsoever to, to drift. And what happens, we begin to find ourselves in places that we were not planning on going. So it was a wake-up call in his life. Well, the book of Joel 
is written about five or 600 years before the birth of Christ. Um, as a nation, people have kind of drifted away from God, and it's written by a guy named, this is kind of easy, Joel. Okay, so rather creative, Joel wrote it, and it's his book. Uh, but at this time of history, he's addressing some issues because people were drifting away from the Lord. They're, they also feel pretty beat up. Now, not everybody's drifting, but, but the nation is drifting. The times are hard. People feel overwhelmed. They're surrounded by enemies outside, within, everywhere. There's opposition. And the people themselves, they just feel depleted. They feel empty. They feel dry inside. Some are not as close to God as they used to be. Some have slipped into ongoing sin and the consequences of all that is beginning to take a toll upon the nation and upon the people. And it's a tragic uh, situation is beginning to develop. This pressure from without and an emptiness from within, when that begins to happen in, in their life and in our life, is there can be an implosion of the soul where because of the pressures without the emptiness within, we just fold. We just kind of give up. We can lose hope. And some, some of you this morning... You might be able to relate to that. You say, yeah, that's my world. You just described my world. I may not have lived in Joel's day, but there's pressures, there's worries, there's anxieties without that just seem to depress in upon me. And I don't even know if anybody gets it. I don't know if God gets it, but this is it's hard because inside I feel empty. I feel dry. I don't feel like I have the, the intensity, the power to really deal with this kind of stuff. And, and it's hard. And particularly for our society, for the whole world, coming out of this past year of the, the pandemic that w- was going on. Um, hopefully we're coming out of it. If you listen to the news, it's not like we're coming out in order to go into another one. You just, you know, there's been a lot of fear. There's a, if there's a pandemic, if anything, it's been fear, anxiety, depression, loneliness, and hopelessness because because of what people have gone through, uh, the relationships aren't as strong. We were unplugged from our, our church fellowships for a while, and it got to be difficult. And many people felt dry. Depression began to soar. And so with the pressures without and the emptiness within, we can kind of identify with this. Well, that's a little bit of the backdrop of the book of Joel. And I want you to kind of get a taste for what they were experiencing back then to understand that it's not that foreign to what we experience today. Into that atmosphere, the Lord speaks. And I ran across this story again. I was familiar with it. I've read it many, many times but uh, hadn't, hadn't been there for a while. And I was flipping through my Bible, and one particular verse, it's kind of in the middle, we'll get to it in a little while, just leapt out at me. It just grabbed my heart. And I saw the grace of God in that, in that verse. And, and hopefully, when we get to it in a minute, you'll see that too. It'll have the same kind of impact. It just says, God, um, God is speaking to us. He wants us to hear something. But it's that backdrop. I want you to get the context of it. And I want to be careful with our time this morning. Uh, we're not going to go through the whole book of Joel verse by verse. But I'm going to look at four particular verse sections or four movements of what God is doing for these people that find themselves in a very hopeless situation to give them hope for the future, to let them know it's not over, that he has things that he desires to do, and to show that he is very active in their life. So when Joel begins to speak to him about their situation, he uses what I call a word picture. He uses a very descriptive, descriptive illustration, a symbolic illustration to let them know that God knows what they're going through. And this is the first thing, is the fact that God gets it. He understands what we're going through. We do not go through the hard times of life alone. He knows what we're feeling. 
And what he does many times is he wants to bring it to our attention so that we know what we're going through, so that we see the condition of our heart or our soul. And the reason he does that is because he wants to meet that need. He wants to meet us at that point, and he wants to bring life into us. He lets us know we're not suffering alone. We're not suffering alone. If you're in a dark place today, if you're going through a hard time, God wants you to know you're not there alone. He's with you. You may not feel him right now. You may not sense him, but he's going to speak to you if you allow him to. You're not alone with this. So into this situation, Joel uses a very descriptive story or an analogy to paint this picture of letting people know God knows where you're at. And here we go. It's in Joel chapter 1, verse 4. I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard Bible. And, and here, here it is. He says, What the gnawing locust have left, the swarming locust have eaten. And what the swarming locust have left, the creeping locust have eaten. And what the creeping locust have left, the stripping locust have eaten. He says, you feel like this. You feel like an apocalyptic army have locusts have invaded your life and they're eating you from the inside out. They're wiping you out. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. That analogy doesn't have the same impact on us that it did upon them because, you know, I think I've got some pictures here. You know, I know what a cricket is. You know, I've seen Disney. I've gone fishing, you know. They, they strike no fear in my heart. I know what a grasshopper is. I think that's the second slide. My cat loves grasshoppers for obvious reasons. You know, it's just, they strike no fear. But I don't really know that I'd ever been introduced to a locust. I don't know if I've ever seen one. Maybe I have, but I've got another picture up here. Next one, uh, hey, hey, buddy. Uh, the next one is an actual locust. See if we can slide over to him. There we go. There he is right there. That's, that's a locust. Now go on to the next picture. They, they don't come in singles. They come in groups. Yeah, lots of them. They, these guys really multiply. Uh, there they are swarming. There's a couple of guys in there. There they are swarming again. Look at them. That's, that's, that used to be a tree right there. It's just a tree of locusts. That used to be a field, and you see what happens. So what this meant to the people who heard it was very very, very powerful. You remember, this is an agricultural society during that day. They lived off the land. Everybody lived off the land. So when locusts would invade, what this meant, crops were destroyed, water sources were poisoned, livelihoods were lost, famine hits, people starve, disease is prevalent, and people die. This is not just like a bad week. This is the destruction of life. And today, locusts still plague parts of the modern world, Africa, Middle East, uh, India, Asia, I think even in parts of America. Uh, I've looked, when I was researching this, some of the devastation that they leave. You can actually see the devastation from satellite images sometimes where they've just moved through a land and wiped out everything. But remember, in this story, God's not talking about literal locusts. I mean, it, it does strike fear into the hearts of the people. And they go, that's, that's, that's the end of life when that kind of thing happens. But what he's talking about is that that is symbolic of things that are happening in their life. It's a word picture. And he's talking about the enemies of their soul that are eating away their inner life. So for a moment, 
Let's take a little bit of a closer look and just think about God's description of these different locusts. And you'll see uh, that the Bible is very descriptive in this. I like the New American Standard because it really pulls the Hebrew descriptions out. But he mentions, first of all, this is picture these in your mind, the gnawing locust. And can you picture them? They're just gnawing away. They're just eating away. They're just robbing your life of something. Most of us know what it's like to have something gnawing at us day and night. It just doesn't go away. And it could be many things that gnaw away at your soul. You may look back over the past week and just say, man, I feel like something's gnawed on me all week long. You know, uh, I try to go to bed at night, I try to sleep, and it's still gnawing. It's still just chewing away. And there are many things that can, that can do that. It can be regrets. It can be problems, worries, blunders. It could be guilt. It could be things that just haunt us at night. But the thing is, God's saying, this damages your soul, these things that gnaw at you. We'll use a couple of illustrations from the scriptures. David knew what this was like. King David was a guy after God's own heart. That was God's word. He's a man after my heart. But he also knew what it was to struggle with sin, to have missteps and mistakes and blunders in his life where he stepped outside of God's intention and God's plans. And when he did that, he writes about it. He says, man, it gnawed at me. It chewed at my soul. It just kept gnawing at me until I brought that into the light of God and invited God into the situation and asked for forgiveness. Let me read his words, Psalm 32, verse 5. He gets very descriptive. He goes, when I was silent, and he's talking about, about my sin, my bones, some versions say, my body wasted away through my groanings all day long. For night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You can relate to that right now in the middle of the summer. He said, then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And that's what confession basically is. We make it into these religious images that seem so foreign. It simply means taking something that's there and opening it up before God and saying, here, here it is. I, I agree with you that this, this is here. I agree with you that this is wrong. And I openly come before you with it. And we invite the light of God to shine there. And we invite the grace of God to work there to remove it and to bring forgiveness. One of the things we think about sin is we, we automatically remember that sin, all sin, is against God. David will say that again in, in Psalm 51. All sin is against God. It means falling short of God's glory, his intention, his plan, his glorious plan for us being made in his image. And all sin is against God. But sin also can many times impact other people, can bring harm and hurt. Uh, all of us know what it's like to be sinned against, to have someone uh, treat us in a way that's not pleasing to God and how that can hurt. But sin also is powerfully destructive to our own soul. It damages our soul. It is not the way God designed us to live. It's not his intention for us. And so it damages. To, 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 to intentionally sin or to hold on to sin or to excuse sin, whatever it might be, unforgiveness or bitterness or some habit we've gotten into, it, it's an act of self-destruction. It is an act of self-hatred. It damages our very own soul. And so the Lord, he brings conviction so that we, for one reason, not to make us just feel bad, but so we bring it before him and say, God, this is not what you want in my life. It's not what I want in my life. Would you come and remove this? That's the heart of God. 
is not just to, to point it out, but to point it out to save us and to deliver us, to convict us and only, only because he desires to forgive that gnawing of guilt, of sin. But there's other things that gnaw at our heart. There's other things that can gnaw at us. It can be worry. It can be, be just an obsession of uh, some regret that we have that we just can't simply let go of or constant criticism either coming from other people but you know who the worst critic of, uh, of our lives many times is? It's, it's ourself, self-criticism. Some of, some of us beat ourselves up. Some of you beat yourself up, and you are, you're just mean to yourself sometimes. You, you may speak to yourself in ways that you would never speak to another person, I would hope. I mean, come on, honestly, you know, you do something, you go, oh, dummy, can't believe you did that, you know? You wouldn't do that to your wife, would you? You know, I don't think so. Your husband, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, maybe so. No, I don't think so. You know, but sometimes we're very, very cruel in beating ourselves up or trying to live for the approval of other people. That's exhausting and impossible and robs us of, ha- of happiness altogether. Perfectionism is something else that can get. I mean, you're, right now our minds begin to go, these are the things that no, what the Lord's doing is saying, there is some gnawing that's taking place. It is not my heart. But he goes on to the second one, the swarming locust. Remember the picture of the, the locust swarming all over those people? That's a pretty terrifying image. It makes me think about guys like Alfred Hitchcock and Stephen King, you know, the horrors that they can design where things just swarm in on us. When I was a kid, my dad and I were on a tractor, and we were actually plowing a field. Yes, I'm, you know, that old. And uh, we hit a, a bunch of bees, and the bees came out, and they swarmed us. And they stung us. It was not a fun day. You know, so I kind of know what it's like to have something swarm. God says, this is what it feels like sometimes, like you're just being swarmed over. Everywhere you look, there's stuff just pressing in. And your life feels overwhelmed with problems, with worries. You're covered up. If it's not one thing, it's a dozen things. And, and it, you just can't even breathe because of everything that's swarming in upon you. Sometimes that happens to us. Sometimes we do it to ourselves by over-planning and over-scheduling our, our life, and we live in such a way that there's no margin whatsoever, no space to really breathe. Or we get caught up in the distractions of life, and we're just busy, busy, busy doing stuff, and we don't step back and give room, and we, we've created this, this swarm around ourselves. I, I remember the story of Jesus where he's going over to visit Mary and Martha and Lazarus, hang out at their house one afternoon, spend some time with them. It would be very cool. And when he went over, uh, Martha gets really busy. And she goes, well, we've got to fix something to eat. And so she goes in the kitchen, and she's preparing. Remember the story? Very familiar story. And, and, and Mary, they're just sitting and just talking to Jesus. And so Martha does something that's amazingly bold. She goes to Jesus, and she gives Jesus an order. She says, hey, make Mary help too, you know? That's pretty bold to go to God and say, hey, you know, Get her, get her working. I mean, sometimes we probably do that. We just don't do it out loud, do we? But we may think those kind of things. And so Jesus responds and says, Martha, Martha, says you're worried, you're bothered about so many things, but only a few are really necessary. Really, only one. And Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. It's not that you're busy It's just that you're missing the opportunity. Your priorities aren't right. And you're busying yourself with something and missing something that that can't be taken away from Mary, but you're going to miss it. And the tragedy is sometimes living a life in such a way that we're busy, we're doing stuff, and then we wake up one day and realize we miss life. And if you have kids, you understand they grow up fast. 
very, very fast. Now, some of you go, yeah, I don't think so, you know, because you're in the middle of diapers and formula and stuff like that, and it seems like it's going to be forever. You know, I'm a grandpa. I can tell you it's, it goes by fast. Life moves by very fast, and so we have to learn to slow ourselves down, step outside of the swarm. And that's what the Lord is trying to do, invite us outside of the swarm. He talks about the third thing is creeping locust. It's quite different. Uh, these guys, they just creep in on you. They move very slowly. Now, I call them ninja locust. you know? They, you just don't even notice they're moving in because it's, such, it's so slow. But they're very destructive. Uh, it's like kudzu. I know kudzu is a four-letter word here in the South, you know? Uh, you don't have to do anything to encourage kudzu. How many of you fertilize kudzu? Let me see. Anybody in here? Yeah, no. I mean, if you did, your neighbors would throw you out of the neighborhood. It just creeps in. It just continually grows in. And there are things that do that in our life, the applications that just go on and on, things that move slowly into our life with no effort whatsoever. They just kind of begin to creep in, filling in space, filling in time, filling in energy and drawing from us and robbing from us. It could be small habits. It could be time wasters. It could be many, many things. You know, again, it's, it's just kind of like drifting. All you have to do is nothing, and it just moves in. But you see, formation and change in our life is a slow process, whether it's becoming more like the icons of the world we live in today or becoming more like Jesus. It's a step-by-step -step process of allowing him to work into our life. So you have to consciously enter into spiritual exercise in order to combat this. Be aware of the things that creep into our life because we're either becoming more like the icons in the day that we live in or we're becoming more like Jesus. It's a very slow process, but we're all being changed. Scripture tells us don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Conform takes no effort, okay? It just happens, but transformation takes effort. It takes energy, the energy of God and our cooperation with that. And he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you'll be able to discern what is good, the pleasing, and the perfect will of God. Next one is stripping locust. Um, and by the way, I'm just going to say, you know, just kind of step over here a second and say, I know I'm taking a lot of time on the first movement, okay? We're still on the first. But second, third, and fourth, it moved fast, okay? So no worries. Uh, the stripping locust. Okay, these are also enemies of our soul that just rob us. They steal from us. They steal our identity, who we are in Christ, who God made us to be. We lose ourselves, and they just strip us bare. And what happens is all of a sudden the joy is gone. The passion that we once had for the Lord is gone. You know, the fire that was once there is gone, and we're left feeling empty and bare. It might be energy, hope, faith, confidence, you know, and so Joel's giving us a very vivid picture here of describing what's happened to the people's soul that leaves them barren and empty and fruitless and leafless, just there. And that's a real sense of hopelessness. So it's into that setting that maybe today you can identify in some area or, or, or not. I don't know. It seems like with storms like this in life, they were either coming out of one or going into one, or maybe right in the middle of one. It just with a few breaks in between. Times of hardship, times of suffering come. Jesus said, in the world, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. 
It's going to happen. He goes, but, but be encouraged. I've overcome this world. We don't go through it alone. He overcomes the world, and he overcomes and helps us overcome by leaning upon him. So I don't, let me just ask this morning, what feels lost in your life? Is there anything that's been gnawing at you? Is there anything that you feel like has been stripped away? Is there anything that's just kind of crept in very slowly, kind of taking the fire and the passion and the joy that used to be there? Do you feel overwhelmed? Like a swarm is just coming and overtaking you. What God is saying through Joel and to us today is, I know. I understand. I want to bring it to your attention because I love you. I want to bring it to your attention because it's not the way I intended life to be. And I want to do something. So which this brings us to the second movement. And this is the verse that just captured my attention. Knowing the background of Joel, knowing the hardships that they were going through, I turned to Joel 2, verse 12, and I was captivated by this one phrase, yet even now, declares the Lord. And I realized that that phrase is such a word of grace. The Lord is saying, yet even now, after everything you think has gone bad, after you think it could never turn around, after you feel like you've lost things that can never be returned to you, yet even now, I want to do something. It's not too late. I have not given up on you. You have not outsinned me. You have not blown it in a way that you can never be restored. I want to do something in your life. Even when it looks like it's too late and everything has been lost, yet even now, you see it? Yet even now, God says to us, not what others are saying or the world is saying or assessing us, but yet even now declares the Lord. You may feel like giving up yourself, God says, no, 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 yet even now, declares the Lord. And then he extends an invitation that's seen in the next parts of these verse. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me or come to me with all of your heart. The word all means all. It means being very intentional, very deliberate. He, God is saying, return to me. Chris preached a message a while back about repentance, and that's what we're talking about is when we find ourselves drifting away, then we turn around and we go, I want to I go toward the Lord. You know, in repentance, we see many times as a negative, religious kind of condemning thing. You, you have a, a picture of the guy who's, you know, the, the scruffy-looking guy has a big beard and says, repent, you know, turn or burn, you know, that kind of thing. But, but the beauty of repentance is not what we're turning from. It's what we're turning to. Amen. What are we turning to? The Lord. The Lord. And he's going to paint a picture of himself here in this verse. We're turning to him. And he goes on, he says, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, not really practices that we engage in too much anymore, but God says these are good. When you find yourself in this condition, you should be moved in your heart. And what he's saying is that we're, it's, it engages our entire being, not just our intellect, but we allow it to touch our heart. We allow it to touch our soul, our emotions, our thoughts, our emotions, our will. Let it sink down into the depths of our entire being, and it's demonstrative. And he says, and rend your hearts and not your garments. That means nothing to us, you know, because we don't have this practice. Back in the Old Testament and even the New Testament days, when a person was greatly moved, either in anger or repentance or grief or whatever it may be, many times they'd rip their garments. And just, I just picture the great, you know, the Incredible Hulk just ripping his shirt off. They, they would begin to rip their clothes in demonstration that they were very passionate about whatever it may, it may have been. And sometimes in religious circles, it became kind of a, 
uh, upmanship. Who can rip their shirt more? You know, who can, you know, I ripped mine more, more passion, so I'm more religious. It became kind of a competitive thing. And the Lord's saying, no, 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 this is not for show. Rend your heart. But the idea of rending your heart, what does that mean? It means to take our heart and rip it open. It means to open it up before God. It's, it's something that's done privately before him. Rend your heart, rip your heart open, and let me come in. Whatever's in there, hurt, shame, anger, sin, regret, fatigue, disappointment, he says, open it up because I want to shine my light and I want to enter into this to bring healing. Why? He says, now return to the Lord. Why? And listen to his description. For, here's why, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness. The Lord paints this picture of himself. You'll find this verse over and over in the Old Testament. That's why I say the Old Testament is also a book of grace. The Lord says, you want to know who I am? You want to know what I'm like? This is it. I'm gracious. I want to extend grace. I'm compassion. I have compassion and pity. But I know that, that this, this, this is what you've been going through. I know how painful it is. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in loving kindness. And the word loving kindness is a very explosive word. It means the agape, unending, unquenchable love of God demonstrated in acts of kindness. It's poured out upon us. And he says relenting in evil. And the word relent means to abandon or to mitigate, to soften or temper to offer forgiveness in a mild, compassionate way. It's a, it's, it's a reversal of what many people think about God as God is some powerful guy sitting up in the universe somewhere ticked off at the world that just can't wait to blow the whole thing up. And God's saying, no, that's not what I'm like. Grace, let that sink in. Grace, grace, abounding in grace. Brings us to the third movement. Not only does he say, return to me because this is who I, I, I am and this is what I want to pour into your life, but remember the picture of the locust? He brings that back into the storyline, and he says, remember the locust that we talked about? And he says in Joel chapter 2, verse, verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust have eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. He names every one of them again. He doesn't just say in general, oh, yeah, the locust, I'm going to take care of that. He says, no, I want to be specific. Because your life is specific. It's not general. It's specific what you're dealing with. And then he reverses each one of these. I will restore you from the swarming, the creeping, the stripping, the gnawing. He wants to be sure that we get it. The word uh, restore is the Hebrew word shalam. Shalam. And that means to restore, to complete, to finish, to make safe, to make whole or good or reward. It is restoration to completion. The New Testament tells us that the work that God has begun to do in us, he's going to see it through to completion. He's not going to give up. He's faithful to see that it's completed. And it comes from a root word, which means being safe in the arms of God. It's kin to the word um, shalom, what we know as peace or wholeness. God is saying to them, I want to come and restore you completely. I want to come and do something inside of you to give you an abundance that nothing else can give you. See, the problem that the Israelis were having, 
It's the same problem that we have today. We attach our hearts to things that cannot fill them. And sometimes we attach our hearts to good things. I mean, work is good. Uh, Family is good. Uh, Accomplishing things, it's all good. But those can never ultimately fulfill us. All of those things, as good as they may be, can be taken away from us. But the Lord says, attach your heart to me because I will always be there. I will satisfy your heart. He moves us on to the fourth. I told you we'd move fast once we got going in this. The fourth movement is we find in Joel 2, 28, and and the promise says, I'm going to pour my spirit out upon you. Not only am I going to restore you, but the restoration that I want to bring into your life when you're going through this, this is my heart for you. I want to pour myself out upon you. That's what he's saying. I want to pour myself out upon you. Look at the verse, Joel 2, 28. And it will come about after that, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, they'll proclaim the things of God, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And then he goes on down a little bit further, and he says, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. That's good stuff. That's really, really good stuff. What he says is, I don't want to just give you something that can be taken away. I want to give you myself. That's my, and that's what your heart's longing for, he says to us. That's what your heart aches for. And I want to pour myself out upon you. But the beauty of this is, this just wasn't for Joel and his buddies. Does it sound, does that verse sound a little familiar? Because it should. When we come into the book of Acts, the second chapter of Acts, it's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon the disciples. They're proclaiming the goodness of God. They're preaching the gospel, and, and, and the church is being born. And the, and the crowds are just going, what in the world's going on? Peter steps up, and he begins to preach, and he, he explains to them, these guys aren't drunk. That's what you're thinking. They're drunk. That's not it. He says, these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. It's not happy hour. It's early. It's way too early. He says, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And here it is. It'll come about in the last days, says God, that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. This is what Joel was prophesying back years ago, five or six hundred years before this took place. When you, when you look at prophecy, in the, particularly in the Old Testament, prophecy has a telescopic dimension to it. When a prophet would speak, particularly like Joel or any of these other guys, he's speaking to the people, a particular audience, and they were listening to him, and what he was saying to them had application at that moment for them. It it applied to their life right then, to the original recipients during their day. But prophecy also has an ultimate fulfillment that goes quite some distance down to the future. I call it a telescopic dimension to it that it means something immediately, but it goes into the future, and it also means something very powerful ultimately in the future. What Peter is saying is Joel's prophecy, okay, it had fulfillment then, but he was pointing to this day, and the ultimate fulfillment of that promise that Joel gave to the people is for today. The Holy Spirit is here now. The Holy Spirit is here now for you. 
God is giving himself to us now. He's pouring himself out upon us now. And so he goes on to say, repent, which means do what, okay? Turn to God, turn toward this God who generously gives, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He goes down, who is this for? And he says this, for this promise is for you. Who's it for? This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That would be us. That would be us. And as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. It's for you. It's for your kids. It's for your kids' kids. It's for those who are close by. It's for those who are far away. It's for those who are yet, not yet even born. God's desire is the restoration of our hearts. He cares about our hearts. He knows that it's, it's so possible for us in this day to have the locust of our day eat away our heart, and we lose our heart. We lose that, that heart. That's why the Scripture says to guard our hearts, for the wellsprings of life come from that. And the wellsprings are, are, is the presence of the Lord filling our hearts. And he wants to restore us to that original intention. He is here now. He is here this moment. He is close. He's closer than your very breath. And he's saying, invite me in. Open, rend your hearts. Open your hearts, the wounds that you have, the places where you feel like you've been robbed. Rip it open before the Lord and invite him into those places. The pain, the hurt, the emptiness, the disappointments, what you feel like has been stolen from you. The Lord says, rip your heart open and let me bring healing in because my heart is to restore the years the locust have eaten. In every way that they've eaten away at you, I want to restore it. Let go of those things that can't bring fulfillment. Let me provide that because I'm the only one who can. So let's pray today and let's ask the Lord to take his living word and apply it to our hearts today where we're at. This message today, this, this teaching, it may, be, it may be directly for you for where you're sitting this moment. You may have some of these things going on in your life. It may not. And you may say, well, that doesn't apply to me today. But it may apply to somebody that you know. Because we're to be messengers of hope. And if there is one thing that is desperately needed in our day-to-day, -day, it's hope. You know, you, you can go about 40 days without food, I guess. Maybe seven days without water. But you can't live a moment without hope. We begin to die without hope. We need to be beacons of hope. We need to be people who can speak a message of hope into our generation. We need to be living examples of people who have hope, but we have to receive it first. We have to invite the Lord in to bring that into our own heart. So we're going to pray for a moment, and then we're going to move into the part of our service where we come and receive communion together. Let's pray.